You're listening to the Evanston Bible Fellowship Podcast. EBF is a community of sojourners empowering one another to cultivate gospel transformation. To learn more about our church, visit ebfchurch.org. This morning's scripture reading is from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 14. Read with me. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with a promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, EBF family. As we continue worshiping God in the proclamation of his word of truth, I just want you to know that I am praying for you. I long to be with you. And uh, as we head into this week of Thanksgiving, I recognize many of us are lamenting the changing of plans. I just want to encourage us to think creatively about how we can love our neighbors and one another. For example, our ethos community is doing a to-go potluck for Thanksgiving. I'm sure there are some other, other great ideas among our church body as well. But this passage here this morning is a soaring reminder of all that we have to be thankful for and how God has richly blessed us in Christ. Can think of no greater passage to focus on as we head into this season of Thanksgiving. Paul's letter to the Ephesians that we began looking at last week is all about the unity of the church in Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit according to the plan of God. The first half presents a grand vision of our cosmic unity in Christ, and then the second half shows us how to live in light of our unity in Jesus Christ. Our passage here this morning is a soaring reminder of all that we have to be thankful for and how God has richly blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Would you join me in prayer? Our Father, you are glorious, holy, loving, just. We praise your name. Lord, would you use your word of truth this morning to remind us of the spiritual blessings that are ours in Christ. These spiritual blessings that you have lavished upon us in your grace. And would you stir our hearts toward white-hot worship, O Lord. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Well, I recognize that heading into Thanksgiving, many of us are coming from just different places in our lives. Perhaps tired or anxious sorrowful, encouraged maybe, or perhaps confused. And in a similar way, the passage we're going to explore here this morning intersects with a variety of struggles or feelings that we face in life. To those who are struggling with 
who they are or where their identity rests to those with perhaps negative self-images or feeling beaten down by life right now, to those who feel overwhelmed or crushed beneath the weight of their own failures, to those struggling to make sense of what, what is happening in the world around us, to those who are perhaps feeling anchorless and adrift, to those searching for approval and acceptance, to those in desperate need of a renewed hope and strength, welcome to what we might call the drama of doxology in Ephesians 1, 7 through 14. My prayer is that in the word of truth, we will find comfort and encouragement for weary souls. The doxology here, or that word basically means a hymn of praise to God, is found in Ephesians 1, verses 3, all the way through 14. And we can look at this as like a drama taking place in three acts. It begins with a banner of truth that stands before the whole doxology, that we have every spiritual blessing in Christ. Verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. In the first act that takes place in verses 4 through 6, we explored in more detail last week, but we see God the Father taking center stage and then three blessings that flow from him and that focus on him, that we are chosen before creation, that we are adopted as his children, in verse 5, and that we are graced with grace, lavished with grace, there in verse 6. In our time together this morning, we're going to look then at, in more detail at the second act that focuses on Jesus Christ, in verses 7 through 12. And then the third act that focuses on the Holy Spirit, in verses 13 through 14. But one thing I think, it, it doesn't exactly line up in such uh, simple, uh, simple detail. Even as each person of the Trinity takes center stage, the other two remain active in the background and are woven throughout the entire drama, this entire doxological drama. But in the second act, in verses 7 through 12, God the Son takes center stage and four more blessings focus on him. The first blessing is that we are redeemed through the cross. In a word, redemption. Verse 7 begins, In him we have redemption through his blood. What comes to mind when you think of the word redemption or redeem? You might think of like cashing in a coupon or a, a, perhaps a gift card of some sort. But in the Bible, redemption is a rich concept that refers to releasing someone from captivity or slavery through the paying of a ransom. It has its roots in the Old Testament where God redeemed Israel from slavery in Egypt. Deuteronomy 7 verse 8 says, But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. The price paid for Israel being redeemed from slavery was the blood of the Passover lamb. So Paul, in saying we have redemption through his blood, reminds us that the price of freedom was the blood of Jesus Christ, the sacrificial death of Christ on the cross, by which our redemption was secured at unfathomable cost. Even today's call to worship in 1 Peter 1, 18-19, reminds us that we are redeemed with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. 
If Christ's blood was how we were redeemed, then what are we, are we redeemed from? Not only are we freed from the spiritual forces that held us captive, as we will see later in Ephesians 2, but we were also freed from the bondage and shackles of sin. And so the second blessing that flows and is closely linked with redemption is that we are forgiven of our sin. In a word, forgiveness. The word trespass here means a false step. It is a a deviation off course and a stumbling away from the truth. Paul uses this term synonymously with sin elsewhere. Forgiveness, though, has a rich Old Testament background. One example is Psalm 130, verses 3 through 4. It says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Redemption results in complete forgiveness of our trespasses and sins. Redemption and forgiveness then flow from the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. God's grace here is then intensified with the word riches, used five times throughout the rest of Ephesians. And then even the verb lavished has a a sense of extravagance behind it. Words can hardly describe God's grace. Our redemption is completely because of God's wonderful, extravagant grace. Every single one of us has a long list of sin debts that we could never pay off. But Christ, through the riches of God's grace, paid them in full. When Paul writes, we have redemption, it is a reminder that it is a present reality in our lives. We are freed at great cost from what it was that formerly bound us. And no matter what we have done, complete forgiveness is found in him. And just as we have been forgiven of so much, so we should extend that forgiveness to those who wrong us. Ephesians 4.32, later here in the book, it says, Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. The third blessing that focuses on Jesus Christ is that we are made aware of God's plan. We see that in verses 8 through 10. In a word, revelation. It is like we have been brought into the know. We have been enlightened of God's plan. God's plan that has its origin in his own wisdom and insight. God's plan involves him making known to us the mystery of his will. What comes to mind when you think of the word mystery? In Paul's day, mystery religions used that term to refer to hidden truths that were known only by a few chosen insiders. But in Scripture, and especially here in Ephesians and Colossians, we see mystery referring to something revealed that was previously hidden that is now made fully known to everyone. Colossians 1, 26-27 says, The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. God's plan is all according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. We have seen God's purpose, his plan, his will, and these interrelated terms that run like a thread throughout the entire doxology. It's almost like being given the script to the play ahead of time. We know what God's plans are. And the fullness of time points to our cosmic unity in Christ with the cross as the focal point. God's plan ultimately 
is to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth, as it says in verse 10. The word for unite here means to sum up or bring into wholeness. My wife, as I think as I've said, is a math teacher, and so that's great to find one of these math terms in Scripture. It has mathematical connotations to it, like, like summing up a math problem. To unite also means to renew. So not only to sum up, but to renew, restoring harmony to the universe that has been in chaos. More specifically, the content of the mystery here is revealed as God's plan to unite everything together in Christ. This is the high point of the doxology. And at the focal point of this reunification is Christ himself. It is in Christ that God will sum up and renew the entire cosmos and restore harmony to creation. One way of understanding this is like an architect submitting a plan well in advance for the construction of a magnificent building. God's perfect plan has been revealed, and he is taking decisive action to bring those plans to completion in Christ. Paul will then go on in Ephesians to address two major obstacles that are linked to the unity of of things in heaven and on earth. That the first obstacle to unity in heaven and earth, or particularly in heaven, is the hostility of the powers, those rulers and authorities. The main obstacle to unity then on earth is the alienation between Jews and Gentiles. And not only that, but between both Jews and Gentiles and God himself. Lest we think that God's plan to unite all things, though, in Christ is all, is all in the future, God has already taken decisive action to set his plan in motion. As Ephesians reveals, the cross, placing all things under Christ's feet, making him head over the church, and more. There are two dangers, though, we can fall into when thinking about God's plan to unite all things in him. The first danger is universalism. But Paul is not supporting the idea of universal salvation apart from Christ here. The second danger is individualism. But Paul is not merely concerned with individuals experiencing salvation. Erwin Ince Jr. in his book, The Beautiful Community, Unity, Diversity, and the Church at Its Best, writes this. He says, in Ephesians 1.10, the Apostle Paul helps us understand that God's plan of salvation is much more magnificent than individual people confessing and repenting of their sins and believing in Jesus Christ. That is surely magnificent, but the glorious gospel is God's plan to unite everything in Jesus Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth. Every rupture in the cosmos will be repaired. He goes on in that book to contrast what we might call great commission Christianity with cosmic redemptive Christianity. In great commission Christianity, he writes, the gospel is the announcement of the good news of Jesus' work to restore image bearers to the rightful place of God. This is not a wrong view, but a limited one. Its hyper-focus on saving individuals and the work of the church says nothing about the redemption of creation, which God is also reconciling to himself through, through Christ. Cosmic redemptive Christianity, on the other hand, understands the gospel this way. Through the work, the person and work of Jesus Christ, God fully accomplishes salvation for us, rescuing us from judgment for sin into fellowship with him, and then restores the creation in which we can enjoy our new life together with him forever. The gospel, 
at its core is about God calling his people to himself and the liberation of creation. That has been particularly challenging to me as I've compared and contrasted these two, this great commission Christianity, which is not wrong, but is, but is just part of this greater cosmic, cosmic redemptive Christianity. In reflecting on how the uniting of all things in Christ should, should shape the life and mission of the church, Ken Ganakan writes very simply, the church cannot live isolated from the world, anticipating the future when God will be Lord over all. It must live out its belief that God is Lord even in the present. Today, mission is spoken of as being holistic, and this is what Paul too emphasizes. God cares about all creation, within which men and women have a special role to play. Therefore, Christians must see God at work in social, environmental, cultural, political, economic, and all other contexts as they await God's ultimate fulfillment. The fourth blessing that focuses on Jesus is that we are then claimed as God's own possession. We see that here in verse 11. In a word, belonging. Verse 11 starts off, In him we have obtained an inheritance. If you put other versions next to one another, you see a slight difference in the way that this is translated. The NIV, for instance, says, In him we were also chosen, with a note then there that says, Or were made heirs. The NET says, in Christ, we too have been claimed as God's own possession. And this translation seems to be more in keeping with, with the Old Testament, particularly in Deuteronomy 32. Men and women who are in Christ have been claimed by God as his very own possession. And Paul grounds this possession in their having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, here in verse 11. This is yet another reminder in this doxological drama that these things are not an afterthought. Language of God's choosing and predestining is woven throughout the whole passage. God is working all things according to the counsel of his will. And the result of this is so that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ... Verse 12, we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. You know, there is an amazing pronoun progression that we're going to see play out here in verses 12 through 14. From we to you to our. We who were the first to put our hope in Christ in verses 11 through 12 most likely refers to Jewish background believers. And we're going to pick this up then as we get to the you in verse 13 and the hour in verse 14. But, but those who are in Christ are claimed as God's own possession. In him we find true belonging. This passage also brings together the themes of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Both must be held as true, and both are woven into these short verses. God's sovereignty is seen in how we are predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Then human responsibility is seen in putting our hope in Christ in verse 12 and by believing in Christ in verse 13. Exactly how these things work together is a divine mystery. I've heard it described before as a a theological black box. But what we can say is that God 
uses human beings to fulfill what he has already ordained. Let us rest in him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. There are things that are done that are contrary to his will and his ways, but even, the, even those he bends so that his purpose is accomplished. God's sovereignty provides comfort and reassurance. Think of a construction sign. We need one that says something to the effect of slow down or caution, God at work. Slow down, God at work. We can have confidence knowing that God is at work fulfilling his purposes. And this helps us then to anticipate his work and be more receptive to it. Verses 7 through 12, though, ends on a similar note of praise as the previous act does in verse 6. It ends, to the praise of his glory. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And then the third act that follows in verses 13 through 14, God, the Holy Spirit, takes center stage. And the two final blessings that are there focus on God, the Holy Spirit. The first blessing that flows from the Spirit is that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. What we might call acceptance. Verse 13 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. When you think of a seal, what comes to mind? Maybe the animal? <laughs> For me in particular, I think of a library stamp that I have. It's a particular, particular seal that is used to stamp my books that say that they belong to Timothy A. Allen. That is next level book nerd stuff right there. But in Paul's day, a wax seal marked ownership. It confirmed authenticity and a guaranteed quality. Sealing in the Bible has a rich Old Testament background where it is used to mark believers as God's people. And then in the New Testament, it, it, it carries the idea of being certified that we are accepted by God as genuine. Think of a royal seal, for instance. In bearing the seal, we also represent God's handiwork to others. Another way of thinking about this might be like a seal that a university uses to authenticate its diploma. It assures students of the value of their education, and it reminds alumni of how they represent the university in the world. This sealing is with the promised Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who is pointed to by the prophets in passages like Joel 2 and Ezekiel 36. The Holy Spirit who is promised by Jesus in John 14 and 16. And the Holy Spirit who is powerfully poured out at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. When Paul then says, in him you also, there in verse 13, the pronoun switch most likely then refers to Gentile believers who would have made up the majority of those he was writing to here in Ephesus and the surrounding area. These Gentile believers who heard and responded to the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. The word of truth reveals God who is true, the truth of God, his saving purposes, and also where we fit into those. And the gospel of your salvation reminds us of our conversion. It draws us into what this powerful message has accomplished. Deliverance from spiritual death. Deliverance from God's wrath, from evil powers, and yes, from the bondage of sin itself. So hearing the gospel, believing in Christ, and being sealed with the Holy Spirit 
are not a sequence of events or drawn out over time. No, the impact of this passage here is that they are closely bound together. That the sealing in the Holy Spirit happens when we hear the gospel and believe in Christ himself. It is not a subsequent event. It is not the reaching of a higher plane or only for some spiritual elite. The gift of God's Spirit shows us that we are His. And the Spirit gives us a sense of God's presence, His active involvement, peace, and security. Because we bear His stamp of acceptance, how are we doing then at representing Him before a watching world? The final blessing then focuses on the Spirit The final blessing that focuses on the Spirit here is that we are guaranteed an inheritance. Verse 14, in a word, hope. Verse 14 says this, the Holy Spirit, promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Think of a down payment on a house. The Holy Spirit is like a down payment or a first installment who guarantees and also gives us a foretaste of the glories that are to come. And this is not just telling us about something that is going to happen in the future. It is actually a bringing the future into the present. We can experience this hope even now. And at the end, Paul switches the pronoun once again to our, from we to you to our, signaling that this guaranteed inheritance is equally experienced by both Jewish and Gentile background believers. This anticipates the theme of reconciliation, that theme of reconciliation between Jews and Gentiles in Ephesians 2, 14 through 18. The kingdom is not divided into classes like sections on an airplane. There are no second-class citizens in God's kingdom. Once more, the final act resolves on that same note of praise as the previous ones, to the praise of his glory. Have you seen that over and over again? The praise of his glory. The completion of all of of this work results in the praise of his glory. This drama of doxology is both a call to worship and a classic example of what worship should be. Our worship and our prayer should have what we might call theological character reminding us again and again of who God is and rehearsing God's gospel together. Prayer should describe God and his reality and draw us closer into his life rather than being a mere list of needs. Let heaven and earth resound with praise. And may we celebrate God's grace, power, wisdom, and love. So when we look at all of verses 3 through 14, this entire, I think what we've called a doxological drama. The bottom line is that in Christ, we are richly blessed with election, adoption, grace, redemption, forgiveness, revelation, belonging, acceptance, and hope, all according to the plan of God. This doxological drama functions to preview then the themes that will be expanded upon in the rest of Ephesians. We're going to see these things again and again. And it also points to What is an even greater drama? That is the drama of the gospel itself. From creation to fall to redemption and restoration. There are notes, there are hints of each of those acts in that greater drama that appear just in this passage itself. 
God chose us in Christ long before creation. He created us uniquely in His image to enjoy wholeness and perfect unity with Him. The text we looked at today assumes, though, that something went radically wrong that ruptured the unity and harmony of the entire cosmos, and that is our fall into sin. There is chaos and there is conflict at every level, and the entire cosmos needs salvation. Praise God, though, that He did not leave us to our own devices, but He acted to send His beloved Son to redeem us through His blood shed on the cross, and to forgive us of our sin. Christ is now risen and reigning and head of his church. He calls us to hear the word of truth and to respond to the gospel of our salvation, to put our hope in Christ and to believe in him. And when we do, we are sealed with the Holy Spirit and get to experience but a foretaste of our final deliverance. The day is coming when God's rescue plan will indeed be complete. And he will unite all things in Christ. Things in heaven and things on earth to the praise of his glorious grace. My heart is that today you would hear the word of truth and that it would would become the gospel of your salvation. Would you place your hope in Christ and believe in him? And we want to hear from you too. If If you do that today or even if you have more questions about what it means to put your hope in Christ and to believe in him, we'd encourage you to fill out our digital connection card. We'd love the opportunity to engage in conversation with you, to pray with and for you, and to point you to Christ, he who has given of himself in love. And to those struggling with who they are or where their identity lies, those struggling perhaps with negative self-images or beaten down by life, God blesses us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. One challenge I'd like to pose to us this week is for, for, our, for us as a church to brainstorm all of the truths, all of those things that are real in the life of a believer. I think we'll use, we'll maybe post this on social media to do this, but we'd love for us to brainstorm in our ethos communities and even, even uh, on, our, on our Facebook page, for instance, all of those things that are true in the life of a believer. What, are, what it means for us to be in Christ. Not just in this passage, but then throughout Scripture. Everything that the Word says about who we are in Him. Let those truths ring in our hearts. Remind us of our true identity. When things around us seem to crumble and to fall apart, where our true identity and rest and hope lies. To those who feel overwhelmed by the weight of their sin, or feel crushed by it, you can be redeemed through the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, and experience the complete forgiveness of all your sin. To those struggling to make sense of what is happening in the world around us, let's hang up that sign that says, Caution, God at work. He is working all things according to the counsel of his will. And to those who feel anchorless and adrift, True belonging is found in becoming God's own possession. To those searching for acceptance, God marks us with the seal of the Holy Spirit. He identifies us as his own, and he charges us then in what it means to represent him well to the world around us. And to those in desperate need of a renewed hope, God graciously grants us but a foretaste of the full deliverance that is to come.
Dear church, let us not lose our first love. Let us be continually reminded of the riches of God's blessing and let it capture our hearts and move us to white-hot worship of our great God. Amen, church? Amen. Let's pray. Gracious God, how marvelous you are. Your spirit has provided everything we need for life. Every good thing has been made available in Christ. We praise you, God. Right from the first, you have been busy devising a way to draw us home to yourself so that we may live with you and for you. Through Jesus Christ, you have made us family. We give you praise for the way you freely gave yourself to us in Christ. And in Christ's death, your abundant care for us is known. You gave yourself for us to bring us back and to make us your people. What lavish love you have for us, God. We honor you. In your unfathomable wisdom, you have made known your plan and desire to bring all things together in Christ. This includes everything in our world and everything in your world. Amazingly, your plan includes us and gives us a share in what you are doing. For this, we owe you praise for the hope that is ours in Christ. When we heard and believed the truth of the gospel, you marked us as your own by giving us your spirit. The Spirit's dwelling in us is a pledge that you will complete your plan and that one day we will truly live with you. For this we owe you praise. Our God, we worship you. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening to this week's message. To hear more messages from EBF, subscribe to our podcast. And to find out how to get connected with our church, visit ebfchurch.org.